Healthcare providers, infection prevention and control practices should be akin to breathing. It should be such an automatic activity to protect the patient in front of you, the patient to follow, and absolutely yes, yourself and your colleagues in between. But as with all things, we need constant reminders of the correct practices and even more so prompt alerts of our incorrect practice. Considering that we're right slap bang in the middle of an actual global pandemic, what better time to remind ourselves of best practice? As with all microbial episodes, we will keep it simple and practical. So today's episode is entitled Everyday Do's and Don'ts in Infection Control Practice. This episode is one that truly applies to any healthcare practitioner in any scope of practice. So if you think there is someone who might enjoy listening, please go ahead and share this podcast or even just this episode. My guest today is Professor Adriano Dizay. Professor Dizay is the Chief Specialist, Chair and Academic Head of Department of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Disease at the University of the Witwatersrand and the National Health Laboratory Services. Professor Dizay has a special interest and decades of experience and expertise in infection control. Welcome Prof and thanks for joining me today. Hello, Vin. What a pleasure it is to be uh, one of the participants of Microbe Mail. Uh, it's an ama- really an amazing initiative, um, and it's, it's wonderful to be part of your program. Thank you so much. Before we begin, remember that you can receive email updates when we release an episode by signing up to our newsletter at www.microbemail.captivate.fm. You can also find us on Instagram or YouTube, and all the links that we've mentioned are available in the show notes. So Prof, let's get straight into it. Firstly, why is infection prevention and control gaining more and more importance on the healthcare agenda? Well, then I think the the really sad truth is that despite the fact uh, that we have um, had the antimicrobial era, Uh, The war against infectious diseases is far from won. And when we talk of infectious diseases, we're talking of diseases of old, those known from the earliest of times, such as tuberculosis, which are nowadays in certain parts of the world extensively drug-resistant strains that are transmitted. And uh, and these uh, organisms are very efficiently transmitted as well. Um, We're also dealing with novel organisms such as uh, SARS-CoV-2 causing the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and we've seen lots of emerging infections, infections that are changing the geographical range or um, are occurring with more frequency, such as Marburg and Ebola. Um, and all, for all of these infection categories, frequently the only real protection you have is the application of infection prevention control as treatment strategies are limited to contain these kinds of infections. I think also to add to this group of of infections that are really posing major problems are the the antimicrobially resistant uh, healthcare associated infections um, that that have been seen over and over again uh, in healthcare facilities throughout the world. Um, The problem of healthcare associated infections is really quite large. Uh, For example, a fairly recent United States study done by the CDC identified nearly 1.7 million hospitalized patients 
uh, acquiring healthcare-associated infections while being treated for other health issues. And uh, more than 98,000 of these patients, this is one in 17, die as a consequence of these diseases. So when we look at um, healthcare-associated infection rates, uh, and we look at the literature, they can vary quite extensively from under 5% for some European countries, which are high-income countries, to as high as um, 18 to 20% in low-income countries, of which South Africa is considered to be one, though we are low to middle income, depending on, on who looks at the scale of economy of this country. Um, so, so the first important point is that it's a big problem and it causes many deaths. The second important point of what I've just mentioned is that it is critical uh, to use infection prevention control to protect us when strategies are limited and to protect our patients from transmission of um, healthcare-associated pathogens. The next important point is that um, antimicrobial resistance, which is really a common feature of healthcare-associated infections, is very costly. It's not just costly in terms of the antibiotics that are required to treat drug-resistant strains, but it's also costly in terms of um, human uh, um, morbidity and mortality, um, which is in every aspect inestimable. Um, I think what, what is also important is that healthcare-associated infections are a very good barometer or measurement of the quality of healthcare. And because these infections are preventable, there is little mercy being shown now by the courts because they're considered to be serious adverse events. Um, and in fact, if you uh, get involved in medical legal um, litigation, you will frequently find that one of the growing scopes of practice of medical legal medicine is, in fact, uh, the stream of hospitals um, for patients having acquired healthcare associated infections. So, so I think for all of these reasons, IPC has never been more timeless. Um, and, and, and I think it needs to be, in fact, a, a fundamental element of the practice of most people. I think it's also important to remember that uh, as a discipline, however, IPC is not, in fact, a very easy one to understand. Um, it's, it's often considered to be too simple by people. Uh, we are the disinfectant and the hand-washing brigade. Add a mop and a broom and sort of that really takes over the dismal image of, of, of IPC. But it's not so. I mean, IPC, um, IPC evidence uh, or, or, or practices may, may really be largely based on intuition. In other words, it makes sense for you to wear barriers, such as a plastic apron, um, when you're dealing with a patient that has got um, a, an infection that is contact transmissible. Uh, but, you know, then people ask you, show me the evidence that the apron on its own will reduce hospital infections. And that's not so easy to get because people use a compilation of different infection prevention control measures when they're dealing with, uh, with patients. Uh, and it's not always easy to tell people what the individual impact of each of the measures is. Uh, and this is also a bit of a problem in the bundle approaches that we have. I mean, you know, with the bundles... Um, most of the, the bundle elements are based on evidence, uh, but, uh, but there are a lot of those that are really common sense and agreed upon by infection prevention practitioners worldwide. 
and and they may not actually have a strong evidence base, uh, but they are nonetheless critical in the bundle. It's the, the completeness of all these interventions that is important. Yes. Then people also tend to, I don't know, this irritates me quite a bit, to oversimplify health-associated infection. Uh, when I stated that uh, the period of dormancy of organisms, and we're not talking about organisms in biofilm systems or uh, organisms that have formed spores, I'm talking about organisms such as the HAI gram-negatives or gram-positives that can go into spore-like states, um, are, are, are not at all fully understood. We don't know why a pathogen causes an infection um, outbreak uh, in a particular facility, uh, and then uh, goes silent for about three to four years, and all of a sudden that very same clone of the organism reactivates. Now, when IPC people talk about this, a kind of, of a narrative that you get is that the organism appears, is introduced into the world, then it goes to sleep, and then it comes back. Well, um, no wonder infection prevention control is considered to be uh, a, a very simple discipline. Um, to the complexity of what goes on is really difficult to get your head around. Uh, and to be overly sim uh, simplistic um, really does not do the discipline justice. And I think also, um, just in consideration before we go into, into the more hardcore elements or messages uh, about what to do and what not to do in infection control, I think people need to be very cautious that um, an intervention that has occurred, for example, in an overseas country, uh, maybe removing taps in a, in a pediatric ward um, and introducing only alcohol-based hand rub, which is more accessible and easy to use, could fail dismally, and in fact has failed dismally in a South African setting, um, large because when the taps are removed, because we have procurement and supply chain issues, um, there were periods when uh, alcoholic hand rub was not available for hand hygiene. And in fact, uh, what, what that intervention did based on good scientific literature, but not actually applying it into a setting or trying to apply it to a setting where the dynamics are different, led to um, a really uh, disastrous outbreak in a neonatal ward. So one must be very careful how you do this. And, and it talks, I think, to the complexity um, uh, and the breadth of understanding that one needs to have about IPC. And, and just before I go any further, let me also say that any intervention that requires behavioral reprogramming and change is exceptionally difficult to implement and to sustain. Um, and hand washing, for example, is one such example. Uh, hand hygiene uh, should really start in the home, right? Uh, but circumstances may not be that conducive because of low economic reasons, etc. Um, it needs to be sustained and promoted at schools, and it needs to be reinforced thereafter always, particularly in healthcare settings and in all categories of healthcare workers, including allied health professionals like radiologists or radiographers um, that come in and out wards. Um, physiotherapists, et cetera, that, that actually need to understand what, what happens and what potentially that can cause. And then the last thing that I want to say about IPC that is really quite frustrating is how people actually just don't understand transmission dynamics. When we talk, when we sing, when we cough, we generate aerosols from our mouths that are really a continuum of droplets of various sizes. Um, large ones immediately drop to the floor, uh, smaller ones can travel a distance of one meter to two meters, hence a one meter 
uh, 1.5 meter distancing recommendation in COVID. And of course, in fact, smaller droplets that actually rapidly become airborne to form the so-called droplet nuclei. Now, whereas many people would accept that a predominant element of transmission and superspread of COVID-19 infection is airborne, um, a lot of practitioners say, well, if infection is airborne, we've wasted all of this time in environmental change and washing our hands. And unfortunately, it's not so simple. Remember that surfaces can become contaminated from those organisms that drop onto them, uh, that mucosal inoculation of organisms is a reality. Remember that respiratory droplets can certainly still play a role in transmission of COVID, although many will accept nowadays that airborne transmission is by far the most important driver of the disease. So, so again, poor understanding of transmission dynamics makes this, in fact, a bit of a problem. So it's a discipline fraught with challenges. So thanks for giving us that broad overview, Prof. And I think we can now go into the practicalities for our listeners. Can we start off with what you think are the top daily do's for a healthcare practitioner in terms of infection prevention and control practices? So, Vin, I think hand hygiene must always uh, be at the top of the list, um, particular do's list when it comes to IPC. Uh, it's the single most important cheap, and by the way, evidence-based intervention. And just for the sake of listeners, please remember that there are five critical moments of hand hygiene before touching a patient, before a medical procedure, after procedure, or if you've had an exposure risk to blood and bodily fluids, after touching a patient, and after touching a patient's surroundings. Uh, these are the five moments of hand hygiene, and people must really make the conscious effort to always remember to perform hand hygiene um, at those five critical moments. Uh, of course, hand hygiene was very difficult once upon a time where there were perhaps, in fact, uh, uh, deficiencies in the number of basins and taps that were available in wards. But certainly the advantages um, uh, and the convenience of alcoholic-based hand drop solutions over running water and taps has made a huge difference. Uh, it, it certainly actually has removed one of the barriers of hand washing, and that is to have to try and get your basin and, and start a process which is long when you don't have time restricted. Um, but also, you know, and, uh, uh, alcoholic-based uh, hand drop solutions can be conveniently stationed um, really uh, at every patient's uh, site. And, and it was quite an easy thing uh, to, uh, to do. And you're reminded of it, you see the bottle, uh, you will use it hopefully and you'll do it. Yes. The second important thing is that should anybody criticize you or say you've forgotten to wash your hands, please change your attitude. This is an absolute must. Um, people need to work collegially. Um, hand washing saves lives. And if you don't do this, you can compromise patients, not only by giving them infections, but even causing their death. Uh, and I think it's really important, especially when we note the dynamic and the aggression that often healthcare practitioners of all designations show infection prevention control personnel, that aggression is inappropriate. Uh, we're doing our best for the sake of the patient. We all forget to do certain critical steps and collegial reminding should not cause offense. So please, actually collaboration is a second absolute do. Yeah. Thirdly, if you're going to use personal protective equipment, it's important that you use it well. 
So, you know, really to wander around uh, wearing a surgical mask over your mouth, um, or even, <laughs> as you can see in the general public, uh, masks of all types on your mouth when we're dealing with the respiratory pandemic is not a very intelligent idea. Uh, so we, we need to actually know that personal protective equipment will give us a modicum of protection provided that we actually select it properly, we make that selection on a risk assessment basis, and that we use it correctly. Uh, gloves are not a substitute for hand washing. Um, uh, and in fact, if you have to dip into a box of non-sterile gloves that are accessed by many hands, hand washing should occur before you get a glove out of that box, as well as after you've removed those gloves. Um, and these are, are things you don't often see. Um, I think that people also often st um, stick to the dinosaurs. We were all brought up to see overshoes in operating theatres, for example, and there are evidence-based um, uh, uh, studies that have shown that overshoes actually increase contamination and infection rates in operating rooms, and that wearing shoes from home are a much better alternative. And in fact, in most of the world, overshoes have been banned in operating theatres. But you find that this is a practice that persists in several healthcare facilities. Um, so where there's evidence, move away, have the courage not to stick to what you're used to, but to embrace the need. That is an absolute need. I think it's also important um, to, to remember that um, everybody is responsible for an early warning sign of a hospital outbreak or infection. The laboratory can give you data, but also on the wards, the minute you start seeing um, early warning symptoms of two or more patients getting an infection, it's a time to be proactive. Uh, and unfortunately, um, a lot of outbreaks become manifested to the press before actually people uh, even are alerted to the fact that already many babies have died, for example, in, in a facility. And this is something that is described in a lot of, of, um, of low-income countries. So everybody's responsible for being on the lookout of, uh, of potential infectious episodes, uh, and everybody must, um, must obviously uh, come to the party so that early warning systems can give rise to a proactive response um, and limit, limit the outbreak in that way. I think that whoever is in the healthcare sector, whether you're a nurse or a doctor, um, or an allied medical professional, you need to invest in infection prevention control fully. Um, you need to uh, believe that this is important. You need to know that a facility has a well-structured committee with a goal-oriented program and an absolute duty that you need to be part of the achievement of the goals of that particular program of the IPC committee, whether it's to reduce bloodstream infections, uh, whether it's to have hand-washing campaigns, and enhance hand washing compliance and consistency of the compliance, all of these things are require full investment. And I need to say this full investment is not just an ethical imperative, but is in fact a legal requirement. It's not that you never do IPC because it's a good thing to do. Um, it's something that needs to be done. It is protected in law uh, and omissions of good infection control practices will result quite easily in, uh, in litigation. Uh, and we've mentioned earlier that this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. I think that also uh, the value of the medical microbiologist must be much more evident to people 
And this should be encouragement of ongoing interactions with medical microbiologists because they best know the organisms that are present uh, in those wards. And, uh, and most of them are, in fact, well-trained in infection prevention control. So, so those are the absolute do's. There are many more things that you need to do, but hand hygiene, using PPE correctly, um, using evidence-based practice where it is available, and I, I admit it's not available for everything, uh, investing in a program, being part of that, achieving those goals, uh, and, and responding to infection dynamics in the ward early, I think are all the important must-dos. Those are really incredibly important points, Prof, and, and the one that I really, really um, enjoyed or I think is really important is the fact that you brought out the importance of IPC being collaborative rather than punitive. Um, and often I think that is one of the challenges that we see on a day-to-day -day basis is that it's seen as punitive rather than collaborative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so can we move on now to your top daily don'ts? All right, my top daily don'ts and some of my pet hates. Now, well, let's start with the don'ts. Don't underestimate how dirty your hands are when they are visibly clean. Um, we often in outbreaks to educate people do hand plates. Uh, or, for example, a person who's just simply adjusted quickly an endotracheal tube. And although the hands look visibly clean, when uh, the hands are cultured on, on hand plates, there's confluent growth of microorganisms. Now, confluent growth is that there are zillions of organisms that are teething on that hand. And those organisms, without obviously um, implementing hand hygiene, will be cross-transmitted easily to others. So as much as you must not underestimate how dirty your hands are, you need to take that into account, the fact that the only way to get around it is hand hygiene on a regular basis. Secondly, I think a lot of people are underestimating the role of fomites, cell phones, for example, um, uh, contaminations of touch screens, et cetera, uh, as well as the environment in infection transmission. There was an era in IPC where people largely focused on, on hands and uh, respiratory droplets and, and airborne transmissions, events occurring largely from, from human uh, beings. But in fact, the role of the environment has actually been shown to play an increasingly important role um, over time. Uh, and, and I think one should not underestimate the importance of the environment infection transmission and fomites that are used. Fomites are inanimate objects that are used um, on patients and between patients. Um, going on the fomite uh, rant, please, uh, wearing stethoscopes around the neck um, is not a sensible thing to do. Those stethoscopes, um, can become colonized with multiple drug-resistant organisms. They can also be actually colonized with organisms of, from the neck and the hairline of the person who dons the stethoscope around the neck. Uh, and as much as you don't want patients' organisms and you don't want those transmitted to others, no patient wants your organisms transmitted to them. Um, when you are, uh, for example, uh, in theater, um, what is the point of going to the canteen uh, wearing half theatre tie when in the surgical suite, what you're trying to actually um, achieve 
is as close to a sterile environment as possible. A sterile environment is not really real. Um, the, the, the reality is that there are many organisms, uh, but you're limiting the number of those organisms by controlling that environment around the operative field to make sure that patients actually do not get surgical site infections. And it doesn't really make sense for people to use set-appropriate and relevant gear uh, and then go out and go into shopping malls with it. Um, and we're talking about sometimes overshoes and theater caps and, uh, and, and of course, the underlying scrubs. Um, this is just not, not appropriate. So please, um, it, it's a pet hate of mine. Don't do that. Um, also remember that uh, you must not uh, use PPE on a tokenistic basis. So if, if you have to wear a mask, you need to don it properly, it must have a good fit. Um, and it needs to be worn for the purpose of achieving a specific outcome. And then one of the things that I want to say is you never do as a healthcare worker, but unfortunately, especially when there are emergencies and there's stress, uh, people do, is get into high-risk activities um, to you, the healthcare worker, for example, attempting to resuscitate a viral hemorrhagic fever patient without having full or enhanced PPE. That's a absolute don't. Healthcare workers must put their safety first. Um, and this is an important ethic that must come across in IPC. Um, so clearly it's always important to do the patients uh, the best good that you can, uh, but generally speaking, never at your own risk. So, so those would be my pet don'ts um, uh, in a nutshell. Um, and these are things that, that I see all the time, either in outbreak responses or in my day-to-day um, -day experience of, of IPC practices. Um, what would you like to add to those don'ts? I'm sure you've got a few more. Ben. Rob, I think what we need to maybe add on is maybe a practical solution to the cell phone and touchscreen use, because that is something that everybody walks around with. And what's becoming even yeah. more challenging now is that people are using cell phone apps for drug dosages yeah. and guidelines, yeah. etc. So they've almost become an integral part of of, of manage of, of yeah, managing of, of, patient. Yeah. So then I agree. I mean, there are many ways of, of potentially doing this. I mean, there are uh, films which enable you to, to still have a touch screen effect. Um, a simple uh, web call um, will certainly not damage the surface of a cell phone. And we're not saying that you mustn't use cell phones, but if in fact they're different contacts, um, just remember that the fomite that you're using is potentially a problem. So if you're certainly moving to a brand new station and you've been fiddling with cell phone throughout um, uh, the ward round and you've seen a patient in you um, please remember there is a potential risk of doing this. So if you're not going to deal with a cell phone uh, because you're going to assume that's invariably is going to become contaminated, then you've got to remember more rigorously to decontaminate your hands before you touch the patient. But never touch the fomite and then touch the patient at the same time. Uh, an intervention needs to occur, and that intervention could either be by using a, a, a rapidly um, evaporating alcohol swab on the fomite, or by, in fact, washing your hands with the recognition that you potentially uh, have organisms in your hands that you can transmit. I know it's difficult. It's more labor-intensive, um, but, uh, but unfortunately, that is the way to go. 
would it be possible to have, in fact, surfaces that are coated with all kinds of substances that make uh, organisms, in fact, uh, uh, unable to, to uh, persist for long periods of time? Well, that certainly has been done uh, and is a possibility. And possibly some of the newer technologies going forward will be looking at, at these kind of protective coverings, uh, features of materials that are used in cell phones. Um, but at the moment, uh, unfortunately, it probably is uh, be more mindful when you touch a fomite that you should not be transmitting those organisms to the patient. And actually, it all comes back down to the hand hygiene and the five moments. Yes, yes, yes Just yes. before you touch the patient, you should wash your absolutely, hands. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Are there any different recommendations when it comes to outpatient settings and inpatient settings? And if so, how? Okay, so, so the long and the short of it, Vanessa, um, remember that a coughing patient coming to our patients with XDRTB can transmit that infection. To you and to other people in the waiting area, um, a, a patient coming in from the cold uh, with, uh, with COVID, for example, um, uh, can become an infectious hazard. Infection control uh, and specifically the standard precautions that underpin it means that you need to apply these practices in all patient care areas all the time <clears throat> and assume that every single patient is potentially infectious. And this means that there should be no difference in application of sensible infection control practices in dental rooms, in GP practices, uh, in uh, outpatient departments, uh, long-term healthcare facilities or, or um, care homes for the elderly. There should be absolutely no difference. It's quite obvious that there are certain areas in the healthcare setting, such as the critical care areas, pediatric and adult, or oncology wards, where the nature of the patients that you're dealing with makes them highly susceptible to infection and to potential complications arising from those infections, such as death. And it's therefore quite obvious that when you're going to have a major infection control program that is interventional based or a surveillance system to measure this. Uh, these kind of infections, uh, these kinds of programs and systems are often put in areas where patients are at highest risk, where infections can give rise to the greatest morbidity and mortality, and where, in fact, infections can drive costs inordinately high, uh, to, to inordinately high levels. So, so, so I think the, the, the basic principles apply everywhere. But, uh, but there's no doubt that investment tends to be greater in some of the high-risk areas of the hospital uh, because of, in fact, the population being much more vulnerable uh, and, and uh, more likely to have uh, very serious uh, consequences as a consequence of these or as a result of these infections. So at the moment, in an outpatient setting, because of the COVID pandemic, all patients come in wearing a mask. But the reality yeah. is, as you said, you know, a patient could walk in with tuberculosis and be sitting in a waiting room with other patients. So essentially, yeah, respiratory precautions should be in place at all times. Yeah. So, so uh, when we say that we should be having a standard precautions and an at-risk assessment of PPE, which means that really in, in, in the world that we live in, it's not reasonable for a patient to walk into an outpatient room, for example, with hypertension or, or, um, or diabetes, 
and see the healthcare worker donning goggles and a plastic apron and gloves uh, and a mask. Uh, that is not appropriate. But where the risk assessment comes in, comes in when you have, in fact, the coughing patient. So in other words, you need to adapt those standard precautions on the basis of a very crude and initial risk assessment. Uh, and that's when, in fact, the standard PPE that is really part of, of what is advocated for different situations and standard precautions becomes really important. Um, so absolutely, if you think you've got a respiratory issue, then protection is appropriate. If you have a person who is coughing in a waiting area, that patient must actually be um, uh, removed or isolated or placed that thing or given a mask or something to actually impede the cough. That kind of stuff can be done. Uh, but, but unfortunately, um, it would really be unreasonable to have every healthcare worker in attendance, including clerks, wearing all the PPE um, in, in, you know, in case you get an infection. Within the context of COVID and a pandemic, however, the picture is very different. Uh, and I think most people will be donning masks whether they've got a respiratory infection or not, and that becomes a requirement. And I think that is actually great because it reduces uh, aerosol formation um, depending on what you're using, but uh, there's always a reduction of aerosol formation, and that leads to greater safety overall. So in this kind of era, for, from 2020 right up to the moment, uh, I wouldn't operate any OPD facility without wearing a mask, as I would be required to wear it at all other times. Right. Okay. And what about children and pediatric settings? Do you think there are any specific recommendations Ooh. there? No, it's a tricky population. Always tricky. It's a tricky population. So, so I think when you, you really hit the nail on the head, I mean, let's remember that the problem is much more complicated. Uh, the environment is of exceptionally vulnerable, high-risk infection prone neonates um, of lots of instrumentation because a lot of these neonates uh, require, in fact, um, uh, intensive care. There's a lot of movement, mums that need to come in, uh, to care for the children sometimes, certainly for bonding and for breastfeeding. Um, uh, and all of this leads to overcrowding, which we know is a recipe for um, infectious disease outbreaks, uh, particularly in neonatal units. Uh, and add to all of this, the stress of staff uh, in these overburdened areas, too many babies, insufficient space, insufficient nursing personnel, um, these areas are, are very tricky because there are multiple dynamics that would need to be gotten right in order to try uh, to reduce neonatal infection rates. Uh, I think it's true to say that although neonatal infections are a particularly big problem in low-income countries um, that have these kind of facilities, uh, they are generally a problem uh, globally, maybe not to the same extent, but neonatal infections are described all the time in the IPC literature. Uh, from European countries, uh, the United States, uh, in other words, from countries that are both well-resourced and those that are under-resourced. Before I ask you to give us your take-home message, we're going to switch over to our Spotlight feature for this episode. And today's Spotlight feature is called the Mini Micro Message. Take a quick listen. Hello, my name is Druti. I'm nine years old and I'm from Johannesburg, South Africa. The beef tapeworm, which causes teniasis in humans, is one of the largest parasites. It can easily grow seven and a half meters or 25 feet long. Imagine that living in your gut. 
Phew! Thank goodness I'm vegetarian. Back to you, Prof. Could you sum up your do's and don'ts in a quick take-home message or maybe offer some tips and tricks for our listeners? Well, let's, let's do the hardline take-home messages. IPC is fundamental uh, to all healthcare practitioners. It's uh, not only part of the ethic of delivering safe healthcare, uh, but it, in fact, uh, talks to the legal duty to care. It is not something that is optional when you have time but it's, it's really compulsory, it's obligatory. It needs to be done all the time. Um, and because we know that if you consistently and correctly practice hand hygiene, um, you can reduce infections quite dramatically. If you were to choose one single intervention to start off with, please actually start with hand washing. And, and finally, a bit of an admonition. 174 years ago, Semmelweis, who was a Hungarian physician working in a, a Vienna obstetric facility, um, really documented in probably the most elegant study um, that hand washing markedly decreased the rates of purple sepsis, um, killing mothers in obstetric wards. Uh, and the bottom line is that it showed that implementation of simple hand hygiene techniques markedly reduced this. Um, seeing 174 years have passed and compliance with hand hygiene is in many facilities often anywhere between 10 and 40 percent. Um, let's perhaps use this as an opportunity. Thanks once again for joining me today, Prof. We hope we'll be able to see you again sometime soon on Microbe Mail. Thank you, Vin. Um, it, it was such a, a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love to get your feedback via email on mail.microbe at gmail.com or on our social media pages. Also, if you'd like to be a guest or recommend a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, then please send us an email. That's it for today. From me, Vin, your microbe messenger, See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.